this series about the case for God and deciding on the, the various topics, I didn't necessarily know where I was going with each one, but as I've gotten into each one, I've gone, yeah, I, this is fun. I, I'm, I'm liking this. And so today we're going to talk about the God of history. Would you stand with me? We're going to read a passage from Joshua. It's not where I'm going to preach from, but it's indicative of the God of history. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests stood, and to carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit because without the Holy Spirit, we won't receive anything today. But with him, Lord God, we will receive things that certainly I haven't even thought of yet and most of us haven't thought of yet. So I pray that you would anoint each heart, that you would anoint the ears that are here, that you would quicken us, make us alive to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last week, the message was basically about, is there a God? And we talked about, okay, can, can you look at this stuff? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim His handiwork. Can you look at this stuff and logically draw the conclusion that, yeah, there's God. Uh, and certainly to my satisfaction, we proved that. And a lot of you are back, so maybe to yours as well. This, uh, this week, we're wanting to talk about, okay, it's not just about, is there a God? But, you know, there are a lot of people who think, well, yeah, there's a God, but he doesn't really, you know, he's not interested in us. You know, he, uh, he created the world and he went off and did something else. Or he, uh, you know, he's, he surely isn't interested in what happens in my life or somebody else's life. So is this God involved in history? And the reason that uh, I, was, I just happened to be reading Joshua this week and this passage struck me because this is very typical of what God would do. Uh, when God would do something, he would go, okay, here's the evidence that it was done. And in this particular case, after he stopped the flow of the Jordan so the Israelites could cross into the promised land, he had them set up 12 stones. 
And it says here, they are there to this day. Well, I, you know, where? I, I don't know. Maybe not to this day. There have been a lot of armies, a lot of people passed through that, that land over the last 3,000 years. Uh, certainly, uh, and, and they may be there today, but certainly by the time that this was written, they were still there. And people could look at them and go, let me tell you, what that, what's that all about? Well, let me tell you what happened. And that's the way, that's the way that our God deals with things. That's our... That's the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is dynamically involved in the affairs of mankind. He cares how we live. And it's not just that he does miracles and stuff. He cares how we live. He cares how we treat each other. You know, look at, look at the Ten Commandments. When I was a kid growing up, almost everybody had those memorized. Uh, I don't know that that's necessarily the case anymore. Uh, even myself, occasionally, I, I'll, I'll, I'll have to go... All right, that's nine. Where's, what's number ten? But uh, just a moment of transparency here. Uh, but let's look at them. Look at, what, look at what they have to say. The first three, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You know, a cynical person could look at that and go, well, yeah, he's just trying to keep the franchise going. Doesn't want, doesn't want people running out after other gods. That's not why he gave those. He's not threatened by the failure of the franchise. He gave those because he knows what those other gods want to do to us. He knows that they're, they're out to enslave us and to kill us. And so he says, I want to protect you. Obey these commands. If you've got children, there are certain places and certain people you don't want them hanging out with because you know what will happen or what's very likely to happen if they do. Well, this is... This is the reason for those first three commands. The, the fourth command, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, what's that all about? It's about God saying, hey, be sure and rest. Take a break. Your body's not created to go 24-7, 365. Have we forgotten that? Yeah. But that's what that's about. And not only that, if you go into some of the other places where it's enumerated on more, he goes, and if anybody's working for you, you be sure you let them take a break too. At least one, at least one day a week. Because he cares how we treat each other. He cares how we live. In fact, the last six are all about how we treat other people. Honor your father and mother. Don't kill people. Don't be faithful to your spouse. Um, don't steal stuff that doesn't belong to you. Don't lie about people. Uh, don't covet what other people have because if you do, it's going to affect how you treat them, how you feel about them, how you're able to or not able to, have, uh, to be in relationship with them. That's what these are. These aren't things that are put on us so that, so that God can go, aha, I saw you mess that one up. No, these are things that are given to us so that we can live free and, and happy and good lives. He's interested and that kind of stuff. He even cares about small matters. Jesus said that he knows every sparrow that falls to the ground. He's concerned about it. Keep, keep, keep in a record of it. He knows how many hairs are on, on your head. That's what the scripture says. He's currently involved in, in the affairs of, of government. He, all authority comes from him, if you'll remember. You know, he, he raises one up, he puts another down. Not just the USA, anywhere in the world. All authority has been given to him. So he's, he's involved. And he has specifically intervened in human history. 
at various times. In judgment, he intervened. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I skipped over this verse. There we go. Uh, I, I mentioned this verse uh, several weeks ago. Isaiah 41, verses 21 through 24. I love this passage. This is, this is, this is how our God feels about things. He's talking about those who have other gods, those who have other philosophies, those who follow other things. He says, present your case. Tell us what you've done. Tell, tell us what's going to happen. Tell us the things that you've done in the past so that we can consider them and go, wow, you really did make a difference. But you are less than nothing. Your words are utterly worthless. He who chooses you are detestable because you really haven't impacted history. Our God does. In judgment, he impacted Sodom and Gomorrah. Destroyed it. The reason that Sodom was destroyed, and it is, would be good for us to ponder this for a moment, the reason Sodom was destroyed was not sexual immorality. How many of you know that? I'm asking for a show of hands. Yeah, okay. Or a nod of the head. Yeah, yeah, yeah about half of you do. And you're, you're way ahead of the curve in terms of culture because most of culture... Feels like, oh, well, it was about sexual immorality. No, no, that wasn't it at all. In fact, I mean, the sexual immorality was bad, no question about it. But when the angels came in, uh, to rescue Lot and his family, they told him that we're going to destroy this place because the outcry against it to the Lord is so great. He sent us to destroy it. Where, where was that outcry coming from? I mean, it wasn't necessarily people, you know, going, oh, Lord, all these people are so immoral. Now, I'm sure some people were, but that, that's not where the outcry was coming from. Ezekiel tells us where the outcry was coming from. Ezekiel 16, 49, 50 tells us now that this was the sin of your sister Sodom. He's, he's doing a, a metaphor here, and he's talking to Judah, and he's saying Sodom was your sister. This was her sin. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. There's where the outcry comes from. They were haughty and did despicable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. Why should we consider that? Because we have a tendency as a, as a people. Let me just say it. We have a tendency as a people to look at those immoral people out there and go, well, we're not like that. But we also have it. If I hear another, uh, boy, I'm just going to, I'm just going <laughs> to jump right in here and get in big trouble. If I hear another person say, "Well, people are just poor because they want to be," I was going to go, "And you're stupid because you want to be." <laughs> Nobody's poor because they want to be. That's not what anybody wants. We got to be careful, guys. Arrogant unconcerned overfed sound familiar God gets involved in history he did in the in the in the case of Sodom he also sent a drought during the time of uh, during the time of Elijah in fact Elijah's ministry starts out the first thing that he said to Ahab first Kings chapter 17 verse 1 he said as the Lord the God of Israel lives whom I serve there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, accept it my word. And for over three years, no moisture, no water, no rain, nothing. Nothing. So God got involved. And then when, when the drought was finally broken, 
It was broken over in, in 1 Kings chapter 18 after, after Elijah had called fire down on Mount Carmel. He cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent the rain. Now I'm not saying that you know, every time it rains or every time it doesn't rain it's because somebody prayed about it. I mean you know, if you've got, you got a golf league and it's playing on Thursday and you're praying for it to not rain and it does rain, that doesn't mean that you're a dirty rotten sinner and have no faith. But pray harder next week because we're trying to get our second. But anyway, the uh, inside joke, I guess, or just not a good one. <laughs> uh, but there are times, there are times that God, it's him going, listen to me. He rescued uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. Oh, yeah. You know, and some might go, oh, you believe that. Yeah, I believe it. I think it happened. Sure do. Go, well, if it happened, why didn't, all, why didn't they all turn to God? Why didn't, why didn't the Lord become the God of Nebuchadnezzar and the God of Babylon? Well, Nebuchadnezzar actually made a pretty strong confession once they got out. And it was actually his second one that he had made. Because when Daniel told him his dream and gave him the interpretation of it, Nebuchadnezzar went, oh, there's no God but your God. He's, he's the God. And then later on in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he had a situation where he actually went insane for 12 years. And when his sanity was returned to him, he said, I've learned my lesson now. There's no God but the God of heaven. And he raises up whoever he wants to, puts down whoever he wants to. He said, yeah. Uh, but let me ask you this. Have you ever known anybody? And I don't know, maybe you haven't. But have you ever known anybody who has made a promise to the Lord and then didn't keep it? Made a vow to follow God and then didn't. People are people. You know, whether, they're, whether they're ancient Babylonians or, or whether they're modern day Tennesseans, they're people. But yeah, he rescued them out of the fiery furnace. But where I really want to go today, there are two major events on which the Lord stakes his reputation. One is in the Old Testament. One is in the New Testament. I don't want to talk about those for a few minutes. The one in the Old Testament is the Exodus. It's mentioned over and over and over and over and over again. It's referenced throughout. God, God always turns them back to go, remember what I brought you from. Remember how I rescued you from bondage in Egypt. Remember, remember, remember. Remember how I destroyed pharaoh at the red sea and the reason why he, why he did it over in exodus 19 he says to pharaoh i have raised you up for this very purpose that i might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth now think about it because you know today we sort of go you know does a god does god need like a a press agent you know does he need uh does he need some advertising yeah and we go, of course not. Everybody knows about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we have the advantage of over 3,000 years since this happened. Before this happened, he was the God of basically a family, tribe of people. Um, they weren't a nation. They didn't have any influence, basically. They were in slavery where they were and people all over the world were worshiping gods but nobody was going hey man have you heard about the god of abraham isaac and jacob 
zip, nobody. And so God used this to make himself famous in all the earth. And the very fact that he is famous is a pretty good indication that he did this, that he actually did, that it worked, that it actually worked. Let's look very quickly at what the, uh, what the particulars were. The um, Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. God delivered them out of slavery, not by, not by any invading army, not by any political referendum. He did it. Passover was instituted. In fact, that was the thing that finally got Pharaoh to, uh, Pharaoh's will to break. See, and let me, let me just jump back here and say one other thing. You know, life is a complicated thing. And stuff will happen, and sometimes bad stuff will happen uh, to good people, and sometimes good stuff will happen to bad people, and, and we'll go, why is that? You know, I don't understand what's going on here. I don't understand why God let that happen. Well, you're right. You don't understand why God let that happen. And oftentimes I don't understand why God let that happen. Why did God have such a wicked, hard-nosed, stiff-necked, slave-driving Pharaoh over Egypt at that point in time if he really loved his people? Well, (laughs) he needed somebody who was going to let him send ten plagues because three might not have made him famous enough. And if he hadn't gotten famous, we wouldn't be redeemed. We wouldn't be sitting here. We wouldn't, be, we wouldn't be singing from the highest of highs to the depths of the sea because we wouldn't know about him. So we don't always know what the answers are, but we know he knows. He's got it sorted out. So Passover was what finally got Pharaoh to break when the death angel went through the land and killed the firstborn of all of the people who didn't have the, the blood put on their doorpost, their house. And then the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea, that's a... That was a pretty big deal that happened in association with this. And then the people came to Mount Sinai, and incredible things happened in Mount Sinai. We're going to be talking about that here in a few minutes. And then finally they went into the, the land of Canaan and took, took the promised land. Those are the, those are the highlights. Those are the major points. And if these things actually happened, if they actually took place, then only a hard-headed fool would conclude, oh, eh, there may be a God, but he, he, he doesn't get involved. He doesn't get involved. He doesn't exist, even. But he is involved in the affairs of men in what we call history. And there's certainly no denying that the Jews themselves are, are a remarkable people, a, a miraculous people, uh, uh, regardless of, of what, what you think uh, politically regarding Israel, I suspect most of you are very much behind Israel. And, uh, and, and, but regardless of what you think, there's no, it's undeniable that they exist and, and that they have a clear, if stormy, relationship with the land formerly known as the land of Canaan. And, uh, and it's just, it's miraculous that they still exist as a nation. You know, I mean, how many, how many nations existed, disappeared for almost 2,000 years and then came into existence again? Not very many. I, in fact, I, I'd say one is the total number that you'd have. So, I mean, that's a remarkable thing. Were they enslaved in Egypt? Did the miraculous deliverance take place? 
what historical evidence is there? Well, first of all, let me say there is no historical record in Egypt of these events, but that's not surprising, given the penchant of not just governments ourselves, you know, to uh, control the news that goes out. Yeah, governments control the news that goes out, but you know what? I control the news that goes out about me. You control the news that goes out about you. You don't tell everything about you either. So, I mean, that, that just kind of happens. And for there to be, you know, if you uncover something in Egypt that went, oh, yeah, man, God came in. He, you know, he kicked our hineys. He took those slaves, draw, took them out of the land, and he killed our army at the Red Sea. Oh, it was awful. You know, I mean, that would be like finding, that would be like finding Rush Limbaugh's secret diary and finding out that he was in love with Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> you know, I mean, that would be... Uh, it, it's, it's possible, but it ain't going to happen. You're not going to find that. It's not going to be written down anywhere. And so that's not, that's not surprising. What about uh, archaeological evidence? Well, it's, it's actually scant. At least it's scant if you're looking in all the wrong places. And there are several places with various proponents vying for the title of Mount Sinai. Oh, I'm sorry. I, well, I'm getting ahead of myself so much today. I just want to say Passover... I just want to say a couple of words about that because to me, to me, that's, well, of course it's genius. I mean, it's God. But I mean, to go, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to give these people a supper to remember this night. I'm going to tell them what the menu is going to be. I'm going to tell them the, the questions that need to be asked and the things that need to be answered. And they're going to do that every year. And for 3,000 years, that's been going on. Now, here's the deal. If Moses... If Moses had, you know, gotten, if he just had a, a group of people in the wilderness and went, hey, look, I've written a novel uh, about uh, some people who were enslaved in Egypt and, and God, God did all these wonderful things and he brought them out by his mighty power and I've got a great idea how we're going to sell it. We're going to start celebrating it. We're going to start celebrating the night that this happened every year. Everybody's got to eat. I mean, uh, you know, who wants to eat bitter herbs, right? Everybody's got to eat bitter herbs and, and flatbread and stuff. And, and we're all, is, there, is everybody on board? Because I think this will really sell. You know, surely somebody would have gone, uh, A, I don't like bitter herbs, and B, that didn't happen. But yet, no, for 3,000 years, they've been, they've been commemorating that night that this happened. Archaeological, let's go back to Mount Sinai. Because Mount Sinai is the, is the key to a whole lot of things. And I know some of you have already done some research on this, but uh, let, me just, let me just tell you the things that, a few things that I know. Um, ideas concerning the Red Sea crossing have focused on areas where shallow crossings were possible, and that's kind of ridiculous because an army got drowned there. So you, it wouldn't be someplace that you could necessarily wade across. Uh, and... The location of Mount Sinai is usually considered to be a place called Jabal Musa on the Sinai Peninsula, of course. Uh, but there are a number of problems with this place. It's a traditional place, but when we say traditional, we're not talking about traditional from the time of Moses. We're not talking about traditional from Bible times. We're talking about traditional from like the 1500s. So hadn't, hasn't been thought to be Mount Sinai for all that long. 
and not only that, a bunch of stuff happened at Mount Sinai, and none of it is, can be found there. No evidence of any of those things can be found there. And so, a lot of people who would like to detract from the veracity of God's Word have kind of looked at this and gone, well, you know what, it really didn't happen. It was just a myth. It's just a story that Moses made up, and people have been eating this meal for 3,000 years because they like this meal. They like to eat. But maybe, maybe that isn't actually Sinai. Maybe there are some other places or certainly one other place that would be a prime suspect. And one of those places, and I don't know how well you can read that, is called Jabal al-Laz. And it's located in northwestern Saudi Arabia. And uh, it can be reached by foot. Um, there it is right there. It can be reached by foot uh, a number of, pretty easily from, uh, from Egypt. In fact, there are two theories about the places where the Israelites might have crossed the Red Sea. And as you can see, it's a different part of the Red Sea there. That northern part, actually, uh, they, found, uh, they found ruins of uh, chariots and weapons and uh, skeletons of soldiers and all kinds of things deep in the water. Um, pretty good candidate. That The southern area is a candidate for a different reason that I won't go into now because I don't really uh, have, have the time to do so. I put in your... Uh, in your bulletin on the, on the insert in there, on the back there is a website that you might want to check out that specifically talks about that southern route, but mainly it's also talking about uh, Mount Sinai over there, uh, Jebel Alaz. And uh, I encourage you to look at it. It's like a 45-minute video and yeah, a little bit cheesy in some places, but it's, it's a good video. It's got some great information. There's another website, the one that talks about that northern route, that I didn't put in, and, I, and I'm just going to put it up here, and it'll be up here for a few seconds. I, you might want to visit that one, too. If you're, if you're interested in this subject, uh, www.squido.com uh, forward slash Mount Sinai. And so, you know, what's different about this particular place, this particular Mount Sinai? Well, this is actually a picture of it. And first of all, let me say, that, that is not a shadow at the top of the mountain. There is not a cloud over it where a shadow is being cast on it. There's not other mountains casting a shadow on it because it's the highest peak there. Uh, what that is is burned rock. It's charred rock. The top 200, the last 200 feet of the mountain, the rocks are charred. And it's not that they're different from the rest of the rocks. If you break them open, they're the same color as everything else. They're charred. Why would they be charred? Well, because in Exodus 19, 19, when the Israelites were camping around the mountain and the Lord came down on the mountain, it says that he came down on the mountain in fire, that there was fire and there was smoke and there was a loud trumpet and the, and the people trembled with fear. Now, not only, you know, does it have the top 200 foot there, but it's on a mountain range and guess what? There's no other mountain on that mountain range with the top of it charred the top of it burned. That's a, that's a pretty good clue right there. Another thing that you'll find in the vicinity, in the area, there's a great plain in front of it, a plain large enough for hundreds of thousands of people to camp on. And on that plain, you'll find an altar. 
are the ruins of an altar. And that's, that's actually was a very large altar because that fence is like 12 feet high. So you, you can tell the altar was, was pretty tall before it was torn down. And it's on this plain. Those rocks, there aren't, they aren't anywhere near there. They were brought there, clearly. An altar was created. And on that altar, there are carvings. Uh, there are engravings. And basically, they are engravings of um, Egyptian calf idols. Now, most of you are aware that when Moses went up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, that Aaron built an altar because the people said, hey, we don't know what's happened to this Moses. Uh, make us a God that we can follow. So Aaron built, took their gold, he built an altar, and he made a golden calf, right? Say, so, okay, well, what's, what's, with the, what's with the markings on there? Well, it's an interesting, interesting thing that he says to the people once he builds the golden calf. He builds a golden calf, he puts it on the altar, and he says, These be your gods, O Israel. Well, isn't there just one of them? Well, actually, this is the way the Egyptians would do it. They would make an altar to gods, and they would put the chief deity in a, in a, in a form on the top, and then they would engrave the sides with the rest of the deities that followed along with them. That's at this site. That's one of the things that you would find there. As you get closer to the mountain, at the foot of the mountain, there uh, are these pillars leading up to another altar. Moses was commanded to build an altar, and he built one at the foot of the mountain, according to Exodus. And those pillars, those are the bases of them there. There are exactly 12 of them. Would anybody have any idea why there might be 12? Yeah, because when he built the altar, he built a pillar for each of the tribes of Israel and you know, as I look at that and I go, natural formation or intelligent design? Uh, it's intelligent design. Somebody created that. Somebody, somebody put that there. Also on this mountain, and this is not something that exists on the traditional Mount Sinai, there's a cave. It's about 15 feet high at the entrance and goes back about 20 feet, and it's about three or four hundred feet from the top of the mountain. Now, why is a cave important? Don't remember there being a cave in Exodus. Well, there wasn't a cave in Exodus. But in 1 Kings 19, Elijah, after he called down fire from Mount Carmel and, and defeated the prophets of Baal, uh, he was threatened by Jezebel. She said, well, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and he took off running. And guess where he ran? He ran to Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai, and he stayed in a cave there, which is where the Lord appeared to him. And, uh, well, the, the fire and the wind and the earthquake came through, but the Lord wasn't in any of those. The Lord was in the still small voice. He said, what are you doing here, Elijah? So there has to be a cave. Well, there's a cave. Another interesting formation about two miles away from this place is a huge rock. Now, that rock is about 50 feet high. So just to give you some idea of it, you, that, that picture at the bottom is a picture of the, from the distance of it. The rock itself is about 50 feet high. It's over four stories tall. And clearly, it's been split in two. And if you're up near it, there are very clear signs of water erosion from the bottom up not from the top down, as you would expect if it had been caused by rain, but from the bottom up, which is what would happen if the water came up like an artesian well 
out of the, out of the earth. Scripture tells us over in Exodus 17 that there was a rock at, at Horeb, Mount Sinai, and it actually was before they got there. It was on the way. They began to complain to Moses, we don't have any water. And the Lord told him to go and strike a rock. And when he struck the rock, the rock was split in two and water came out of it to be able to quench the thirst of all the people and all of their animals. Well, that's about two miles from this particular mountain. And one other thing, actually it's two other things, but I'll, I'll do them quickly. Uh, regardless of which one of those uh, crossing sites for the Red Sea you pick, uh, they're both about the same distance from the mountain, and they're also both between 30 and 40 kilometers from a place called Mara. The Scripture says that after they traveled three days, which would be about a 30 or 40 kilometer trip with that many people, after they traveled three days, they came to the bitter waters of Mara. And if you go to that place, if you go to Mara, there is a well there, there, is, there are waters there, but you can't drink it. In fact, uh, one, of the, one of the guys that uh, actually had made the trip was talking about just touching that water to his tongue. He said four hours later, you could still taste it, you could smell it, you just ugh, couldn't get rid of it. But then you go on a little bit further, and there's a place called Elam where there's an oasis with 12 springs. In Exodus, it said they went on from Mara, and the next place they came to was the oasis that had 70 palm trees and 12 springs. And so I, there's a pretty good case for this actually being Sinai. Now, two other things here, and I'll close out on this part. One, uh, you may go, well, wow, why wouldn't, you know, why, wouldn't, why don't we know about this? Why can't we sign up for the tour? You know, why don't they have archaeological teams in here? This is, this is a place that needs to be really looked at. Let me see. Why would the Saudis not want to allow access to a place that would prove the exodus from Israel and by so doing prove essentially Israel's claim to the promised land. Why wouldn't they want that to happen? And then secondly, all this stuff is here. I mean, if, if Sinai happened, God came down and burnt the top of the mountain and everything just like Exodus said happened. Doesn't that mean he's real? Doesn't that mean he actually gets involved in the affairs of men? As magnificent as the Exodus was, though, it pales in comparison to the New Testament event the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ three days after he was crucified he was reported to rise from the dead and you know I'm sure they didn't take out ads in the paper but word began to spread that quickly and less than two months after that they might as well have taken out an ad in the paper because at the day of Pentecost they publicly preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ and over 3,000 people were converted. Now, not everybody was happy about this. Not everybody was excited that Jesus was being preached as having risen from the dead. 
So how do we know it happened? Well, first of all, we have eyewitness testimony, and that is the gold standard of history. You know, it's one thing to hear what somebody said to somebody about something that happened to somebody, but it's something else for somebody to go, I was there, I saw it, I know exactly what happened. We have eyewitness testimony. Well, wouldn't these guys, you know, uh, maybe these guys were just making this up. You know, maybe they were kind of going, wow, we, we've got, we got a good thing going on here. We can, we can start a religion. Well, there's a couple of problems. First of all, like I said, not everybody was excited about it. Uh, they would have their enemies who would wish the claim disproved, and disproving the claim was a very simple thing to do. Habeas corpus, produce the body. I mean, they knew where, who took him, Joseph. They knew where he had buried him. They, they had put soldiers around the tomb. They knew exactly where it was. And the embalming was such in those days that clearly he could still be identified. We put a stop to this. All you got to do is find the body. And it hadn't been that long. But they couldn't. But the other thing that's a bit of a problem is this what would you die for would you die for your country that, that that's good that's that's laudable would you die for your family most of us would i, I just want to say to my kids it's okay for me to die for you you're not supposed to die for me because i don't want to attend your funeral okay but most of us would die for our family uh would you die for your friends You've probably got some friends you would die for. Would you die for a cause that you believed in? How many of you would die for Springhouse? Okay, it was a trick question. Of course you wouldn't die for Springhouse. You shouldn't die for Springhouse. I mean, this is, this is just a place, and it, 100 years from now, it probably won't be here. Depends on how good the next pastor is. <laughs> But uh, you'd die for the cause of Christ. I would. I mean, I think I would. That, that'd be something we would do. But I got an idea. I got a plan here. See, my daddy, Harvey Meek, a lot of you knew him. Good man. He was a real good man. He was known in the community, well-respected and everything. And I got a plan for increasing attendance and really jacking some things up here. What do you say we start the story that Harvey Meek is risen from the dead? <laughs> I'm serious, guys. I mean, look, who's with me on this? We, we, some of you guys could become apostles. You could, you could start writing books and things. You could put out, you could, you could go on tour talking about Harvey Meek and how you knew him and, and saw him and touched him and were in the same room with him and everything. And now he's risen from the dead and gone to heaven. Any takers? No. Yeah. And, and some of you could die for your testimony, and that would really seal it. Who wants to do that? I, I know we can sell this if some of you will just die for it. <laughs> of course you won't. That's ridiculous. You may say, well, these guys, you know, they knew that they were going to become these famous. Oh, get over it. 
You know, it, when you're facing death, you don't go, well, at least I'm going to be famous. <laughs> no. And every one of the apostles, with the exception of John, and he was willing to do it, was killed because he said, I saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Now that's an eyewitness. And you know, you can look at the things about Sinai and the Exodus. You can look at the stuff about the resurrection. And uh, you can blow it off. You know, you can go, nah, nah, there's another, you know. They just went up there and painted the top of that mountain. You know, they just made up all these stories about martyrs. They didn't really get killed. You know, things like that. And if you do, there's nothing I can do about that. But when I look at it, man, he's real. He's alive. He's involved in the lives of, of mankind. And it's not just mankind, it's you. You didn't come today because it's Sunday. You came today because he brought you. Would you stand with me? Those who are going to pray with people, come forward. God of history. Isn't just involved in these great things of the past. He knows what happened to you this week. He knows what you're facing next week. He knows what, what you're uptight about. And... He brought you here today because he'd like to do something for you. If you need prayer, you come. These brothers and sisters will pray for you. And they can't do anything, but the Holy Spirit can. And he, he will move. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, he's real. He's real. You know, I, I didn't even go into what he's done in my life. But the things that have happened in my life aren't things I could do. He's real. We'd love to introduce you to him. There's a great joy in knowing him. We're going to worship for a few moments. We'll wait on you. You come. You come. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burdens, who daily hears our prayers, who gives us our salvation. Blessed be the
is awesome. And he is awesome in his sanctuary. And according to the New Testament, that sanctuary is inside of you. Raise your hand. Let me give you a blessing. As the Lord gave to his servant Moses for the priest to pronounce over the people, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.